Could you please open up your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians 15? And if you don't have your Bibles, pretty much most of the text we'll talk about today will be projected up there uh, behind me as we, as we hear from God's Word. 1 Corinthians 15. As I said earlier, it's just such a, it's such a joy when you watch how God reminds you that He's in your midst as you come together as a church family and many Sundays, there's some song that connects with some prophecy or some word from the mic that connects with something in the message that just, and, and many times it's more than one that begin to tell us that, well, God's at work here. And no one's calling each other behind the scenes necessarily to put this word in this place. And so when Buzz came up this morning to say, I want to read first Corinthians 15, it just, you know, I'm, I'm especially in this season, I'm just so encouraged by those moments when God says, I'm here, I'm speaking through my word and through my people. So I'm so grateful that, Buzz, you, you brought that up. I'm so grateful to the Lord that he put that on your heart, because that is indeed our text. Um, so, Logan, can we put up that slide? So, <coughs> excuse me, I've got a little bit of a something in here. So not very far from my house, just around the corner, like a, a couple of blocks, there's a little church, a little old ancient Episcopal church. There's a little graveyard in the front. I think I've taught you guys before that... It was traditional, at least in a season, for churches to put graveyards, cemeteries, right in their front lawn. And the idea was that as people come into the church, they'd look at the the gravestones and they'd remember. And they would be humbled by the reality of the brevity of this life. And the reality that they have to enter into that tomb with all of these people who've gone before them. Unless the Lord comes again. And it was, in a sense, a way of saying... This is a really serious thing, this life. And this is a really serious thing, this church, and what it's trying to do, and what God's called it to do. Because nothing is more serious than this. That little tomb next to the big one, I couldn't read much on that big one. It might have been here when the... When the um, the Vikings first discovered America or something. <laughs> it just, it was moss covered and, but that little one next to it, I could read this little name, Mary. You probably can see like the, the rain drip, um, residue coming off. It just said Mary, and I, I, I can't remember her last name, but it, it, it said 1927 was when she had departed. And that's 90 some years ago, right? 91 years ago. That's, that's about twice as long as I've been alive. She's been there. Her body's been there twice as long as I've been on this earth. What happened to her? Well, of course, we know what happened to her. She passed away, just like everybody does. Her body went into the tomb, and that's where it is right now. It's been there twice as long as I've been alive. But what happened to her? Is that the end for her? There's really nothing more important for you and I than that question. This life is very brief. Even if it, if it gets 70, 80 years, it's very brief. But Mary's been there a long time. She's been there longer than most people live. And most people in that graveyard are going to be there, unless the Lord tarries, centuries longer than we live on this earth. So really the bigger question isn't, what am I going to do with this life? It's, what's the deal with what happens after this life? Unitarian minister Marilyn Sewell interviewed renowned atheist Christopher Hitchens. If you don't know who Christopher Hitchens is, he passed away a few years ago himself. Uh, and uh, But he was a militant atheist. He was a brilliant guy. Very, very bright, very witty, very engaging thinker. And he spent much of his career arguing with and writing against Bible-believing Christians. One of my assignments in pastor's college was to read a Christopher Hitchens book. I was, I was attracted to his wit. By God's grace, I wasn't fooled uh, by his arguments. I wasn't intimidated on, on the back end of reading. I was a little intimidated on the front end of reading. What was reading him going to do to my faith? It was assuring at the back end that his arguments weren't surprising and they weren't strong from my perspective. But he was really smart. 
And I think in this interview, at least in this moment, he looks quite smarter than Marilyn Sewell. So she's a Unitarian minister. And if you know much about Unitarians, they believe that what you believe is what you need to believe. But they don't want to put any pressure on what you believe. They just want you to be faithful to whatever you decide you will believe. So she's interviewing this atheist, Christopher Hitchens, and she says to him, I'm a liberal Christian. That's not political necessarily liberal. It means what I said before, that she's probably not very militant about doctrine, probably not definitive about it. She says, I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And Hitchens said to her, this avowed atheist, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. Her next words were really, really shrewd. She said, let's go somewhere else. (laughs) It's literally in the interview. You can pull it up on my Facebook page. Hitchens knew better. He knew that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity is a joke. It's a farce. And that's what he believed, that it was a farce. But he knew it was meaningless. You take that piece out. All your prayers, all your quiet times, all of your awkward moments of striving to tell someone about Jesus, all of your Bible studies together, all of your daily fighting, your sin and confessing your failings, all of your pursuing of purity, sexual morality and fighting against the lusts inside you, all of your fight to love people that are hard to love and to keep forgiving It's meaningless. Hitchens will say it has some moral value for time on this earth. But if Hitchens was in an interview with Paul the Apostle, he would would have a problem with that conjecture as well. Paul would say, as we'll see later, why even bother with it? Why even bother with it? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what Paul would say. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is a farce. And the Corinthian church was facing this question. They didn't know it at that time, but the foundation of their faith was being pulled out from under them. They were facing a crisis of potential meaninglessness, of of being a farce. They were being led astray with the lie that the resurrection from the dead was not going to happen. And it's not clear what was being taught in its place that was keeping them coming to church. But it's not hard to imagine because there are thousands and thousands of churches that have given up on the resurrection that meet regularly. Perhaps what was being taught at the Corinthian church in some substitutional, seductive doctrine is is exactly what Marilyn Sewell believed when she was interviewing Christopher Hitchens, that... What the resurrection is, is simply a metaphor. It's a, it's a beautiful poem. It didn't really happen, but it's a beautiful metaphor of rising from a life of selfishness, selfishness, rising from a life of hatred to a new life of love and caring for people. Of course, any follower of Christ should express that kind of growing change if they've truly come to Christ. But that doctrine is not going to mean anything to Mary that little stone church near my house as she sits there and rots in the earth. It's not going to do her any good for the centuries that should the Lord tarry, she'll just be there turning to dust. But thank God that's not the kind of resurrection that Christianity teaches. And it's not the resurrection that Paul's going to be so vociferous in defending in the text today. Let's listen to Paul's answer to... Is, Christi- is, is the resurrection a metaphor? Is the resurrection a beautiful poem for, for us being kinder people? Here's what he says, starting in 1 Corinthians 1. I'll read and talk and read and talk, and we'll hopefully get through this text with some help from the Lord. Before I do that, 
you know what I've forgotten to do? I've forgotten to pray. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, I just, I know you're here. I know you've been helping. I just want to pray one more time with my whole church family here. Lord, you tell us that your word is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. You tell us that, Lord, it's your word that we live on, not bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth is our food to live. Lord, you tell us that your word is able to equip us for every good work that you've called us to. Father, by your word, the heavens and the earth were made. And by your word, your people are born again into your son. And by your word, we are kept. We are kept close to your son. We are refreshed. We are in love rebuked so that we can have feeble knees strengthened. We are in love corrected. We are in love lifted out of our Selves and out of our fears and given courage. By your word, Lord, we are transformed further and further and further into the image of your son. And that all happens, Lord, when your Holy Spirit comes and breathes through your word into the hearts of your people. And so our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name, is that your Holy Spirit would blow and breathe life through your word this morning. And it wouldn't be my ideas that, Lord, win the day. It would be your truth that wins the day through your word preached by the power of your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, God. Have mercy on your people. Have mercy on me. To clean us, to revive us, to renew us, to sustain us by your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul defends the resurrection. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are. Being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised On the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, Paul lays down the law from the beginning. He says, this is the most important thing. It's of first importance. This truth is what saves you. He says, not just you were saved by this. He says, you are being saved by this as you hold on to this. You hold fast to it. And if you've given up on it already, then your faith was fake to begin with. Hold on to it. This is the most important thing. And I received it. I didn't, I didn't originate. He says it didn't come from me. It came from God himself. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul calls their attention to the fact that before Christ even came, there was a witness in the courtroom of truth. Miraculous predictive prophecy given over hundreds and thousands of years saying Christ will come. Saying a savior will come, a messiah will come, a king will come, a ruler will come. Saying he will die for your sins. He will see the light of life and be raised and be satisfied. Paul says it happened according to the scriptures. Just what God said would happen, happened. It happened. He said it was going to happen. He told us it was going to happen. And it happened. When I was a kid, I, I used to go by the tabloids, you know, with my parents or wherever it was, the grocery store. I'd see the Inquirer and, the, and Star. I don't, I don't know if they're still out there. I, don't, I can't remember. And not just because I don't probably look at them, but because I just don't remember anything anymore. I have four kids. I don't sleep. I don't remember anything. 
But I used to walk by these tabloids, and, and it was always like Nostradamus' prophecies. And you remember Joan Dixon? Some of you, some of you old-timers like me remember Joan Dixon? She'd have her prophecies. Oh, Jean, Jean Dixon, see? Memory. And Jean would like prophecies for 1992, you know? Bill Clinton's the Antichrist, and then Gorbachev's the Antichrist, and Ronald Reagan's the Antichrist. I mean, every, every year there was a new Antichrist. But there were prophecies, right? What's going to happen? Nuclear war this year? I'd see the big nuclear explosion. I would be freaked out as a little kid. Freaked out by these prophecies. But you know what's so funny? The Bible knows that we're instinctually interested in what's going to happen. The Bible knows that there's something in us that says... There's something else that says there's a plan. Like, this is already written. There's, there's a God who understands and who sees and who orchestrates such that we should be able to somehow know what's coming. We should know the big picture. The Bible commends that instinct because again and again and again, across the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Isaiah 53 Daniel 9, Psalm 22, Zechariah 12 through 14, Matthew 24, and countless other passages. God cries out and says, I plan the future from the beginning. Who else is like me? What I proclaim will come to pass. I will do all. I will do all that I proclaim. Who is like me? Test me and see. Did I not proclaim it and did it not come to pass? Many things we're still waiting for. But these, Paul says, these have happened. These are according to the scriptures. And next, Paul calls their attention to another category of witness. The witness of all those who saw Jesus. What Buzz reminded us this morning, starting in verse 5 through verse 11. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some has fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. We'll come back to that in a few moments. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That section's a little whole sermon in itself sometime. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So Paul continues the defense by testifying to the fact that more than 500 people saw Christ risen from the grave. More than 500 people could see the marks in his wrists and the wound in his side if they'd asked and the pierced marks in his feet just as Thomas did. Many of them probably saw him walk through a wall made of concrete and clay. Many of them saw him do that and then eat some fish on the beach with them. Not a ghost but walking through walls, <laughs> but not a phantom munching on fish. What is this new creature? <laughs> but he's saying they're still alive. Most of those people, you, they're still there to ask. If you can make your way to Jerusalem, many of them are probably there. Paul then talks about his own conversion and Later we'll talk in the chapter, he'll talk about his own suffering as proof of his conversion. Now living eyewitness testimony, these people have all gone now to God. It's not available for us today. But this recounting really does have teeth in it when we look at the extra biblical testimony of history. These 500 people can't speak to us, but certainly these 12 apostles can. You know, it's one of the great proofs of the historicity of Christianity, particularly of the historicity, the authenticity, the fact of the resurrection, that all of the apostles except for John in historical tradition were, were martyred. That is put to death for their witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in some cases, we have pretty much irrefutable proof of their martyrdom. They were killed for saying that Christ rose from the dead. They were murdered for saying they saw Jesus again after he was horribly murdered. 
There's a man named Charles Colson who died a few years. He ran prison fellowships. He was a, a, a political hatchet man in the 70s for Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal in the 1970s. He actually went to college with my dad. And my dad says he tried to get my dad into a secret society. I'm glad that didn't work. My dad might be in prison today. Or my dad would be in ministry with Charles Colson. Anyway, it didn't work. But he was part of the Watergate scandal. Everything's called gate, like Iran gate and... Yeah, yeah, Benghazi gate. There's gate. So, But it all starts with this apartment complex called Watergate in D.C. That's where they, they these Republican operatives broke into the Democratic headquarters and try, tried to get some ammo for an election they were going to win easy anyway. But anyway, Colson was this young, ambitious, aggressive, unethical guy in the White House. And he got busted for this. And through this ordeal, including a prison term for his part in Watergate, Colson became a believer. He wrote a book called Born Again about it. It's an amazing book. And then he started this prison fellowship for, the, for decades. He ran this ministry before he died. But he thought about his ordeal, and he thought about the ordeal of the apostles. And he compared the martyrdom of the apostles... To the behavior of the Watergate conspirators. And he said this. I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years. Never once denying it. Everyone was beaten tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have adored that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That's what our friend Mary in the grave needed. She needed that kind of concrete, sure hope. And these 12 guys said, oh man, this hope is so sure. This hope is so concrete. This life I got nothing compared to an eternity with my risen Lord. It's real. I saw him. Compared to that precious treasure is life. It's worth giving up this life. It's worth torture and stoning because not because I want to be a martyr forever because I don't want to give up on this. I'm not going to trade a few years of comfort and ease for an eternity of strength and vigor and joy and my body back forever. Not sitting in a tomb Dying with the sun in a million years. What Paul does next to defend the resurrection is not only talk about the testimony for it, the biblical prophecy of it, but he's now going to talk about the meaning of it. And he does it in kind of an interesting way. He, he's going to kind of reverse things and talk about what do we lose if we lose the resurrection. So I want to concentrate for the rest of this morning on, on this, this hope. That hopefully through all this we'll treasure it more passionately, be encouraged by it more deeply Three little points in the rest of the text I want to draw out. The first one is this. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith lies about God. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is a lie about God. And that's important. Going on to verse 12 through 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So Paul is saying, if we do not rise, Christ did not rise, and we're lying about God. What am I doing? Spending all these days persecuted, chased down, beaten, going around lying about God. That could not be more serious, Paul says. Lying about God is a big deal. Very hard for us to see. Yesterday, I I passed by some Jehovah's Witness folks who were warmly sharing their literature near the canal in downtown Frederick. They looked very kind. They looked very nice. And I'm confident they were very kind and nice. Now, if you stop by and ask them, they might be excited if you probe and glad and proud to tell you that you, Bible Christian, have got it wrong about Jesus. Jesus is an archangel created by God, the first of all his angels. In Jehovah's Witness theology, before Jesus takes on human form, he was Michael, the archangel. But of course, I watched them for a little bit. I thought about talking with them, but I didn't. And no one did either. No one wanted to talk to them, just as you might imagine. It was all very peaceful and very boring. And nobody cared what they had to say about Jesus either way. But do you know who cares about what they're saying about Jesus? Jesus cares about it. God cares about it. It's so hard for us to understand in our pluralistic society where diversity of faith is celebrated and freedom of worship is protected and considering all things, I'm very glad for those things. But to God, those values, diversity of faith, freedom of all kinds of worship, They are just sad concessions. They're just sad concessions to protect the proclamation of his gospel and to keep a wickedly broken humanity from killing each other in the names of their various religions. It's a necessary evil right now, these things that we hold dear to. It's hard to hear, isn't it, even to say that? Freedom of worship, worship any way you want. I don't think that excites God as much as it can excite our culture. The word of God says that Jesus is God's son. And that if you do not believe that, you're lying about God. The word of God says that all things are created for his glory and his renown and his name. And that he's jealous for his reputation. And that his name is not blasphemed or hidden from the earth. God's heart is not diversity of faiths. It's true knowledge of who he is. I'm not saying stop people from... You know, put them in jail or put them in prison for being, you know, a different religion. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that God's heart is true knowledge of who he is. Of exactly who he is. Habakkuk 2.12 says that God is moving and passionate and bringing a time when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. It's not a celebration of diverse faiths. That is the truth about Jesus and his godness and his resurrection proclaimed in all the earth. That is the son of God appearing in the sky and every knee bowing. And realizing there is one true faith. There is one God. And Paul says here, do you think that I... A man so concerned for God not to be blasphemed, not to be lied about, that when I thought Christians were blaspheming and lying about God, I chased them down. I threw them in jail. I approved of their burning at the stake and their stoning because I thought they were lying about God and I was passionate about God. Don't you think I know what's at stake if I disgrace his glory by telling everyone he's raised his son from the dead if that's a lie? Do you think it's a light thing for me to misrepresent God? It means so little to us in this culture. To Paul, it meant everything. He would die rather than misrepresent God. And he would cry and grieve when he'd go into cities where the idols were worshipped. It would make him grieve him to his core because God's name was being misrepresented and blasphemed. 
This is an incentive for us to care about God's name. I pray by God's grace that I won't walk by unless I've got an emergency. But if I've got time to walk by another Jehovah's Witness stand, I'll stop by and say to them, in Jesus' name, don't misrepresent the Lord. He's not an archangel. Turn from that idolatry and be saved. I pray that I will, through this next point especially, grow in my desire, my zeal for God's name and for helping people not leave this earth without knowing his name. This brings us to point two. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins. If Christ did not rise from the dead, we are still in our sins. So Paul gives another reason here for why the resurrection is so crucial. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Worse than that, you are still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, destroyed. Whenever you pay for something, you always get something besides what you paid for. Whenever you pay for something at the store, you always get a little extra something than what you paid for. What is it? Somebody said it. I heard it. Somebody said bags. What? What's gratification? Those. That's true sometimes, but neither of those are what I'm looking for. There's one. Somebody said it already. A receipt. A receipt. Somebody said receipt. Who said receipt? Way to go, Mark Nichols. You get an extra cookie after church today. Yeah, you get a receipt, right? They have to give you a receipt. If you leave Costco, and not only do they have to give you a receipt, if you leave Costco or Best Buy, they're like standing there at the door, you know? Oh, man, that's quite a job. They, you got to check your receipt. They have guards now who are waiting for you to walk out with a 55-inch TV that's not yours. You have to show them your receipt. Your receipt proves It proves you have finished paying for what you're taking out of the store. It says nothing more is owed. It says this has been paid for in full. I have every right to walk out of the store with this thing because I paid for it. This is one of the wondrous aspects of the resurrection. When God raised Jesus from the grave... It proclaimed the most glorious truth we could ever hope to hear for all eternity. Your sins, my sins, believer in Christ. All of them paid in full. That is why God can tell you this morning the most hard to comprehend, hard to believe, glorious, seemingly justice inverting truth that you who struggle every day, every moment, With sin, with following God, with loving him as you should, you are justified already. You are forgiven already. Your sin debt, all of it, is paid in full. Jesus, if I might say it this way, forgive me, Lord, if this is a little unkempt. Jesus is the most glorious receipt ever received. He is done paying For your sins, nothing more is needed. He is not still dying because your sins need no more paying. He is our living receipt. His life is literally the proof of your forgiveness and your righteous standing before God. Hallelujah. Oh, it was so good to have to prepare this message and say that to my soul again. Conversely, Paul says, if Jesus has not been raised, you get no receipt. It is not paid for. Your sins are not paid for, and you are still in them. Marilyn Sewell, God bless you. God help you. Christopher Hitchens, may the Lord have helped you. Without the resurrection, we have no forgiveness. Without hope and belief in the resurrection, We have no forgiveness. We are still in our sins. This is terrible to be still in our sins. And it tells us what the heart of Christ offers. At the heart of the gospel is this offer to all people. Fundamentally, to belong to Christ is to be counted free from your sin, forgiven of your sin, and no longer in your sins in the sense that God will judge you for them and punish you for them. See, at the heart is the problem 
of God's holiness. The heart of Christianity is the problem of God's holiness and our sinfulness and how to solve this. God is holy. He made us for his glory. He commands us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he is very serious about it. He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And he is not kidding. And in ways known to us and in ways unknown to us, we fail at this every day. And because we don't feel his wrath every day, we can mistakenly think that he's got no wrath about it. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. <laughs> You're mistaking what's his gracious patience with you for compromise. He's not compromising about your sins. He's just being patient. If you haven't come to Christ, he's just being patient with you about your sin. He takes them seriously. And one day he says he will judge us for those sins. And our eternity, if we are not in Christ, if we are not a believer in Christ, showing follower fruit of being in Christ, our eternity will be set forever. We will be cast away from his presence. We will be cast away from his goodness, his love, into what the Bible calls outer darkness. Outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Another name for that is hell. Another name for that is everlasting, never-ending punishment. It's just. It's a mystery. Somehow, it's the hardest mystery, I think, in Christianity. Somehow, there's an eternity. An eternity of, of punishment of some nature. Of grief, of weeping and regret and sadness. And it is just. I don't understand it completely. But when we, when we understand it, Hopefully none of us will understand it by experience but because we'll be able to see better when we meet God and he'll explain it to us. It will make sense to us. You may be here today because it's Easter and you thought someone invited you and you should come to church because it's Easter. And I'm so glad that you came. And I'm sorry because you did not know that some preacher guy is going to tell you this terrible news that you need Jesus to save you from your sin. You probably didn't come to church to hear what the world might call fire and brimstone preaching. I'm not thumping a Bible at the podium, at least. But I got to tell you this stuff, because if I don't, I'm not really caring for you. I'm misrepresenting God to you. I'm misrepresenting his truth and his heart for you. And Lord, most of us in this room know him. God, help us not to be misrepresenting him to our friends and our neighbors, our family. Either by saying things about him that aren't true or just by ignoring him to them. God, help us. Amen. Because he is serious about sin. And God's heart is that those that we love around us who don't know him, his heart is that they would all be saved, that they would be forgiven of their sin, that through trusting in Jesus, God will move them from being in their sin, which is where they are right now. If they don't trust Jesus and follow Jesus, that's where they are right now. They're in their sin and that God will move them from being in their sin to in his son, accounted, forgiven, justified, paid in full. Last point, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied above all. If Christ did not rise from the dead, we are to be pitied above all. Now, on one hand, Paul is speaking here very personally when he says this. Coming back to the text, I think I've, I've misplaced the text in my sheet, so I just want to look at this. Can we, yes, here it is. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are most of all people to be pitied. And Paul is saying this at first. You can, if you know his life, and I'm sure most of you do, he is speaking very personally. He is familiar with a life, to use Matt Maka's extraordinarily colorful language last week, that sucks. <laughs> Please forgive me if that's a little uncouth. But it's, it, it is not an easy life for Paul. It is a hard life. He is a man familiar with beatings and imprisonment, with shipwrecks, days lost at sea, with being called a liar and a swindler by the churches he loves and he's trying to care for. 
He's a man familiar with grief and sorrow. And so in one sense, he can say this quite poignantly. What am I doing all this for? What am I doing all this for if there's no resurrection? Why give my life to beatings and imprisonment by the pagans and being slandered and lied about by my family in Christ? Why give my life to that? Why abstain from a marriage, go about with few friends and no wealth? The friends I do have, at one point he says, they've all deserted me. At the end of his life, Paul says, everybody's deserted me. I think it's in 1 Timothy 4. It's one of the saddest things, except you, Timothy. Everybody left him alone in prison. Did anybody besides Jesus live a better, more meritorious Christian life in the time they had? At the end of it, he writes Timothy saying, they've all left me. Why go through all that? And Paul would say, oh, I'm no fool. I'm no fool. And I'm certainly no eternal victim. I'm doing this because I found God. And he is worth all of this. Temporary trouble, distress, sickness, beating, imprisonment. He is worth it all. He is worth it now. Here's what he thought about it. Let's let's look at the next verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not to be worthy compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That does not sound like a man who's living his best life now. Right? This life is not worthy to even be compared to what I'm waiting for. Paul would say from prison, Jesus Christ is worth it right now more than any other friend as my constant companion. And he will show himself exceedingly worth it when I literally see him face to face. And Paul is not, however, just speaking for himself. He is saying this to all of us. And it, there's, a, there's an application here. There's an implicit exhortation in this. He's saying to all of us, live in such a way that your love for Jesus, that the world in some measure would say, I mean, I pity them. What are they doing? There should be something of your life that tells the world that there's no better hope than the resurrection of the dead. There should be something that tells this world your hope is not in this world. That your investment of time and energy and treasure is not in this world. Jesus says to all of us, not just Paul, if anyone would come after me, let him, oh Lord, help me hear this, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Each day for the Christian is to be a day of death and a day of resurrection. Death to self. Death to putting my will above God's will. Death to putting me in the center. My desires in the center instead of Jesus. That's the power that Jesus gives you when you come to him. He gives you the power to die every day and to keep fighting to die every day. But each day as we seek to do that, We experience not just death, but we experience resurrection. We experience his new life power in us. Jesus living in us. His power eking out and spreading out to our heart. His love, his peace. We die to ourselves and we experience life in him. That's the rhythm every day. Dying and rising with Jesus. Paul said, every day I carry around in my body the death of Jesus so that every day the life of Jesus might be manifest in me. And he said, it is worth it. He said, it is a bargain. It is far exceedingly better than living for myself. But if there's no resurrection, 
There's no new life in Jesus. There's no new power living inside us. And if we're fighting that fight to die daily and live with Christ, we should be pitied. We should be pitied. We're missing out. We're missing out. Man, there's so many movies I could just watch all the time. There's a lot of drinking to be done. That's fun. There's a lot of, there's a lot of amazing things to look at that I should never look at. That God would be horrified if I indulged in. That would feel wonderful to my flesh and break the hearts of the people closest to me. But more than that, there's a lot of money I could have kept, right? Many of you would say the same thing. A different house I could have lived in. Certainly, things that fighting to have another quiet time when the door just feels so hard to push in. Fighting to forgive that person when your heart is telling you how bad they are and what they've done to you. And you say, no, God, bless them. Fighting that awkward tension when you just feel like you know you got to say something about Jesus to this person. But it's going to be awkward, man. It might even offend them. Sometimes it does offend them. Fighting to stay sexually pure when you're single. When the world all around you is saying, "You you are a freak. Certainly, isn't that a place where you're pitied above all if you're single and you're trying to remain pure sexually, the world looks at you and says, oh, you're to be pitied. But there should be something about the purity of our lives. That would be true of us wherever we are. So after giving us these reasons for why we're hopeless without a resurrection, Paul says this, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. I love that word, first fruits. A harvest begins with first fruits. It doesn't end with first fruits. One harvest begins with first fruits. There's not one fruit in one harvest and then a whole bunch of other fruits in another harvest. No, it's the first fruits of a single harvest that has begun already. See, Easter Sunday was not an isolated event. It is the first moment. It is the first note. It is the first volley of the new creation that has already begun. Jesus has experienced it personally and fully for us. And he's gone ahead of us to say, I have started this. I will finish it. We experience it only partially. Our souls, our spirits, our innermost being rises from being dead to God and alive to sin. They rise when we come to Jesus, when we put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Most of all of you have experienced this. Our hope changes. Our whole countenance, our life changes. We, we believe what we could never believe before. We start wanting to do what we could never do before. We find power and joy in living for God and obeying him like we never did before. We're not perfect. It's not always easy, but it's different than it ever was because something's in life in us for the first time. It's our spirits. They rise from the grave when we come to believe in Jesus. But our bodies, they have not risen from the grave. They are going in the other direction. You young people in this room can barely believe it. You can barely believe it. I'll tell you what, I can barely believe it. Paul says our outer self is wasting away. I keep looking in the mirror and seeing new lines I never thought I would get. I can never conceive that this would look like this permanently. And these lines would start forming here. And these spots would start coming over here. But it's going to get a lot worse than that. Right? And we, we laugh. But if you saw my dad at the Italian restaurant... I don't want to say that too much more about my dad. But it's going to get cataclysmically worse. Cataclysmically worse. 
Unless the Lord comes back early. The natural way of things runs a course. He's going to slowly take everything from me. And at the end, maybe very quickly, my skin will wrinkle, my bones will ache, my eyes and ears will fail, my teeth will get soft and gray, and then he'll take away many people I love as they go to the grave before me. And then he will take me from everyone I love. And all this fellowship and all this friendship, all this warmth, on that day, I will close my eyes and it will be just me. No one will be able to come with me. I will have to say with Job, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. There'll be no friend for me on that journey. No one to depend on. Not even my body. It will be my naked soul. Standing before God. Stepping into eternity. That is going to happen to every single one of us. And it's going to happen to everyone you know at work. Everyone in your family. Everyone you see. We let this life fly to us. As if it's going to last forever. It is not. It is not. Oh, to have Jesus. Oh, to have Jesus. To have Jesus on that day. To know that he is your receipt. Oh, you've been inconsistent in your faithfulness to him. He has been fully consistent in his faithfulness to you. To know that your sins are paid in full. To know that his resurrection life is not just yours to live today, but it is a promise that you will share in it fully with flesh and bones restored to you. Hair and teeth and skin, beautiful and new, Forever. The resurrection means everything. Folks, it means everything. With it, we tell the world the truth about God. We tell the world the truth. He's a God of hope. Not a God of vanity and futility. He's a God of strength for eternity and joy for eternity. With it, we proclaim that we are no longer in our sins. It's been paid in full. With it, we tell the world we're not to be pitied. We're to be envied. We're to be envied above all people. Thank God for the resurrection. Thank God for the first fruits of what is awaiting us. Let's ask for grace to treasure it. Let's ask for grace to proclaim it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I've taken a long time. Give us grace to treasure the resurrection of Jesus. Give us grace to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our glorious eternal receipt. Thank you, God. We have been paid in full and we have an eternal hope. Help us to be bothered in our heart for those among us who don't, even as we treasure what you've given us, Lord. Renew, refresh, reawake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.